We've more or less resolved the sound, first of all, the visual problem and then the sound problem. So this is, this is the difficulty of technology in, in Oxford, I'm afraid. Um, um, anyway, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Sveinung Sandberg, who's uh, come to talk to us today about his research. Um, Sveinung is Professor of Criminology at the University of Oslo, um, and his research focuses on processes of marginalisation, violence, masculinity, legal, illegal drugs radicalization and social movements. Um, his work falls within uh, Bourdieuian and narrative criminology. And at the moment, he is says, leading a research project, perhaps you're writing up your research project on radicalization and resistance that explores the relationship between everyday religion, extremism, and street culture. Um, so I'm very pleased that Svanen came all the way to talk to us. He'll talk for about an hour, and then we'll have half an hour of questions at the end. And he has a sort of multimedia presentation, which some of which may work and some of which may not work. It involves syncing with a laptop. So anyway, I, I'm sorry about Oxford technology. But over to you. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's my first time in Oxford, so I'm a little bit intimidated by the architecture, <laughs> but I'll do my best. Uh, and uh, my talk will be on uh, what I describe as the street jihadi nexus. So I'll focus on how street culture and extreme jihadi subcultures uh, are connected in a radical hybrid street culture that uh, poses a new threat in one way, but also new limitations for extremist movements. <coughs> Uh, the work I will present today has been done in close collaboration with Sebastian Tutanch, uh, who is on the same project as me, and Jonathan Egen at the City University of London. Uh, and the name of the big project is uh, Radicalization and Resistance Towards Radicalization. Uh, so the talk, uh, in the talk I will start first by saying something about the phenomena where gangsters suddenly become jihadists, uh, and explain how the way Bourdieu's framework has been used in criminology and the way it has been used in criminology can help us understand these processes. I will then move on to two new empirical projects uh, uh, that emphasizes resistance. So that's, how we, uh, that's why we have this name, radicalization and uh, resistance. Uh, so we believe that uh, we know a lot about, and there has been a lot of studies about why people radicalize, but we know less about uh, why people don't. So we want to look at that both in street culture and among uh, ordinary uh, Muslims. So these two projects involve ethnographic fieldwork with Muslim street criminals on one hand and qualitative interviews with 90 young Muslims on the other. Previously, before starting this project, uh, I've done some work on the Breivik terrorist attacks in, uh, in Norway a couple of years ago. Uh, and I've also studied the European anti-Islamic movement uh, a little bit. But my main field of research for the last 15 years has been uh, drug use, drug dealing, gangs and violence. So at first sight, this might seem an odd background for studying political violence. But uh, I do believe that it has something important to offer terrorism studies. 
criminology has something important to offer terrorism studies. Especially when we study foreign fighters and terrorists socialized into street culture, drug use and street crime. Uh, criminology has studies, studied these groups of offenders for more than 100 years. So in that sense we are not new to this field. Uh, and it's rather the other way around that terrorism scholars have started to be interested in the usual suspects of criminology. In terrorism studies, this, uh, is, uh, this phenomenon is known as the crime-terror nexus. It describes the linkages between organized criminal groups and terrorists. Uh, crime-terror nexus refers to terrorists using crime as a source of funding and a partnership of organized criminal organizations and terrorist groups. Basra, Neumann and Brunner point out a recent trend uh, that uh, when they describe how criminal and jihadi worlds merge and have come to recruit from the same pool of people, creating often unintended synergies and overlaps that have consequences for how individuals radicalize and operate. In Norway, for example, the police security service states that 68% of the jihadi radicals uh, have prior to radicalization been suspected, charged or sentenced for criminal uh, acts, mostly violence and drug use. And there are similar uh, numbers in, uh, in Sweden and several other uh, European countries, including the UK. So while this is nothing new, uh, terrorist groups have always attracted young men fascinated by excitement and violence. Uh, it seems to be a particularly distinct characteristic of, of recent waves of terrorism in Western countries and uh, also a char uh, important characteristics of the foreign fighters going to Syria. So uh, there are many possible links between crime and terrorism, of course. Uh, it varies a lot with social, geographical and historical context. So I would try to be a little bit more specific and discuss the possible links between Western street culture and street crime, not crime in general, and violent jihadi groups and symbolics, not terrorist groups in general. So what is this street jihadi nexus? What I describe as a street jihadi nexus is an attempt to narrow down the crime-terrorism nexus to something more specific and understandable that can be studied empirically. The street jihadi nexus is the relationship and symbolic merging of street culture and jihadi subculture, sometimes described as the new jihadi cool. In short, this includes people, the tendency to recruit from the same pools of people as Basra and his colleagues emphasize, clothes and style, the mixing of military style, camouflage clothes, street style, bling, and traditional religious clothing. Often it's all mixed at the same time. The street jihadi nexus can also be seen in slang, the mixing in talk uh, of standard sayings from the Quran with English phrases often inspired by gangster rap and gangster movies. It all comes uh, simultaneously when people talk, and we can see this in, in, in chats and so on. So, for example, when we have been looking at the chats of uh, foreign fighters in Syria, uh, one at home asks, oh, why did you go to Syria, to his friend who, who left? And he answers, it's Jihad Joe, uh, back. So this kind of mixing. Uh, 
in between all the religious reasons, you can see the influence of this kind of a street, more traditional street culture. Finally, there is a lot of cross-references in music, for example, the paradoxical emergence of jihadist rappers. Uh, so, uh, while music is uh, forbidden uh, among these Salafi uh, jihadists, uh, it still pops up uh, rappers who kind of play on the same uh, ideology. There's also a new tendency where references to Islam have started to appear in gangster rap uh, that shows how religion and criminal subcultures has gotten closer. Uh, Islam somehow has become uh, something dangerous, a uh, very strong symbol, a very potent symbol of something uh, you should be afraid of and therefore also cool for these subcultures who celebrate uh, danger and celebrate opposition and things that are different. Uh, so it becomes attractive for excitement seeking use and those who want to provoke. One example of this is the Norwegian uh, rapper Kamel, uh, not very well known outside of Norway, not, <laughs> not even in Norway. <laughs> but uh, uh, all European countries have these uh, rapper scenes where people kind of look to the US and they try to imitate it as best uh, as they can. And uh, in Norway at least they're well aware that uh, they're not real gangster rappers but still they try uh, to come as close as they can. Uh, and Kamel here is one of the artists that comes the closest to the American stereotype. He served prison time for attacking uh, people with bricks uh, and once escaped from the police station by jumping out of a window several floors above the ground. Uh, and in the music video I will play a little bit from uh, afterwards. The main point is uh, see anything, which means say nothing, don't say anything. And he brags about how when he's interrogated by the police, the files are completely empty. He doesn't even say hi or uh, anything. So... Uh, this is this kind of a standard of race and rule in street culture. So, so far nothing unusual. But what's interesting in a clip uh, that I will show is the part where he suddenly says to my Muslim friends, Assalamu alaikum. This Arabic greeting uh, that means peace be unto you. And it comes very much out of the blue in the video. Uh, Kamel is not a Muslim. He doesn't have a Muslim background. He doesn't have any sympathies for jihadist groups or anything like that. But uh, he's still manages to fit in this uh, greeting uh, in the middle of the video. So now the synchronization starts. <laughs> it takes... <laughs> so precious. <laughs> So in the beginning he rides this small uh, scooter, which is an ironic uh, reference to a classic gangster video where uh, this uh, guy is riding a huge motorbike. So it's kind of ironic. Uh, still.
the new thing. It beats the shit out of wealthy boys. The girl can blow job sucks. But I'm missing. So it's all these classic, uh, classic references. And then a little bit out of the blue, uh, this uh, greeting to his Muslim friends. There is flow in the music. He starts by saying, "He beats the shit out of wealthy boys." Uh, it sounds better in Norwegian, uh, of course. <laughs> uh, your girlfriend's blowjob sucks, meaning that he had sex with her, so he knows. So all the classical references from gangster rap. And then your breath smells shit, and it finishes with saying vademekum, which is the thing you use to get a better smell. And it's also the word he needs to rhyme with assalam uh, alaikum. Uh, so it's difficult to know where he picked up the phrase from. Uh, maybe from some of his friends, or maybe from the Nation of Islam, who had certain street cred uh, in the U.S. Uh, but it reflects that Islam has become cool among ordinary, uh, in ordinary street uh, culture in the West, and it's the same in Germany and other countries as well. That you have these emerging rappers that play more, much more actively on Islam than uh, they have done. Uh, before and if these guys are good at anything it's like sensing the new trends, what's coming up what's the next cool thing so uh, it's a good way to kind of see uh, see the development of youth uh, culture I think so that's the one end of it, if we look at the other end of the continuum or what we call it the uh, we can also see the merging of uh, uh, street culture and religion in the style and background of well-known Norwegian jihadists. And this is the same too for all over Europe. So, uh, as you can see from the picture, they all, except Ismail here, place on uh, or uses or is kind of related to a typical Western street culture. Bastian Vasquez... Uh, as a background from uh, Latin America and as a, uh, was first a rapper for a couple of years and then he, moved, he went to Syria and became a leader there. Uh, his man, Ahmed, uh, also typical uh, background from street culture uh, before he went to Syria and died there. Uh, Tulev Hammer, this guy was selling drug, a notorious drug dealer for many years uh, and then he left. And uh, Kim reading the uh, last one, and you can see both of these are playing on, on this camouflage thing and the scarves and uh, and all of that. And, and Kim reading uh, in particular also shows how uh, the converts has become an important part of the jihadi scene. Twenty five percent of the people leaving for Syria from Norway were Norwegian converts, so they kind of had his position in, in regular street culture, using a little bit of drugs, uh, maybe, uh, involved in a, a little bit of violence, and then suddenly they turn to Islam and, and go to Syria. So, uh, 
Yeah, so there are two ways that Islam and street culture is combined. On the, on the one hand, in regular street culture, signs and symbols of Islam is used to appear cool and dangerous, as Kamel did in the video. And on the other hand, jihadi groups use cultural expressions from street culture to attract youths. Uh, you can see that in IS uh, videos, for example, where they set up these uh, very technically advanced and very uh, detailed uh, exhibitions of violence that kind of play into a popular culture where violence is uh, celebrated. And you can also see it in clothing and, uh, and so on. So, somehow these two cultures uh, merges. So what is this street culture then? Uh, the main idea in the literature is that marginalized groups will seek out alternative arenas where they can succeed and traditionally criminal and subcultural groups have provided such uh, arenas. To put it simply, if you can't manage school or uh, get a regular job, maybe you have what it takes to sell drugs on the street. And that can give you another form and sense of respect than the one valued in mainstream society. And these are just some of the main works uh, within this tradition. William Foot White, who's the classic here from uh, Boston in the late uh, 1930s. Uh, Paul Willis, of course, which is more, much more in school, uh, in a school setting, but it's still this, uh, this oppositional culture opposition to mainstream uh, middle-class culture. Anderson, uh, who has maybe become the modern classic that everybody refers to with uh, this concept of the code uh, of the street. And uh, Bourgeois, who is another big name uh, in the tradition. And I threw in a sweet hair, because they've been working on it too. <laughs> Uh, and of course, the, the last one, Alice Goffman, that uh, you probably, most of you know, uh, has uh, become really uh, controversial, fantastic book, but also uh, very controversial uh, because of her involvement with uh, people she studies. So this is a highly uh, empirical tradition, uh, which is maybe why some of these books really get a broad uh, distribution. Some of them can be read more or less like uh, exciting uh, novels, uh, especially Ben Katesh, uh, for those of you, became, became like a bestseller, uh, while it's still based on this uh, traditional classic uh, street ethnography tradition. So my contribution to this field has been a book uh, we called uh, Street Capital, uh, that I did with Wille Pedersen a couple of years ago, or actually many years ago now, uh, where we tried to move from this empirical emphasis uh, and also make it a, uh, turn it into a more coherent uh, theoretical uh, framework for doing study, these kinds of studies. Uh, so in this book we try to explain the reasons for why a group of street drug dealers uh, ended up in criminal environments and the fascination and attractions of these scenes. Uh, and again it was based on uh, a long uh, ethnographic fieldwork with uh, these subcultures. So the concept of street capital, uh, uh, it's the kind of the cultural capital uh, of the street 
the knowledge, skills and objects that are given value in street culture. Uh, for example, the experiences with use and sale of drugs, violence, crime and so on. Uh, and the idea of using the concept of capital is to see that you can accumulate it. You can have more of it and uh, you can have less of it and it takes time. So in the same way as with money for most of us, you can't just get it all uh, in, in one day. You have to work slowly and hard to get more and more and you can also lose it. And it, it's also to capture this idea that it's some kind of investment. Uh, you invest in, you're partly just socialized into where you are, but you also invest in it, like taking an education and so on, as we do with uh, the concept of cultural capital. And it's the same way with uh, the competences you need to survive on the street. You have to invest in it, it takes time, and uh, you have to be careful too. Uh, kind of protected. It's uh, a related uh, concept is street habitus. Habitus and capital in Bordeaux is closely related. Uh, and habitus is the embodied dispositions of people committed to the street. For example, the embodied practices, uh, practical sense that is seen in hypersensitivity to offenses and frequent displays of violent potential. Uh, for example, if you bump into someone, I guess the, the English are very good at excusing themselves, so, and it's kind of immediate response on impulse, you don't think about it, now it would be nice to uh, be polite and uh, say I'm sorry, I think the Scandinavians, they don't have that kind of uh, politeness, so they just try to hide and afterwards, and in street culture, if you bump into someone, the immediate response is of course to seek eye contact, to see if this is like a, a potential uh, conflict or if it's an offense, if it was meant as some kind of a disrespect. And if it is, it's of course to bump back and uh, take whatever steps necessary to uh, provide your uh, sense of, uh, of self. And again, it's very much embodied. You can't learn it. You can't tell me to go out and uh, and act like that, because it happens like this, right? So you, you need to really have it socialized and, uh, for many years to be able to pull it off and to look like you really fit into the environment. Uh, so it takes time and it's, uh, it becomes you in a way that's uh, difficult to change. So the concept of street capital and street habitus is an attempt to kind of uh, this practical rationality that Bourdieu describes that combines structure and agency where you see how people act within the context that they are embedded. So they're somehow rational or you can understand it makes sense what they do but it's within a given uh, structure and it's not cognitively. It's not rational choice in the way that people kind of wait the advantages and disadvantages and, and so on. And it's also, I think, a good way to combine cultural and economical uh, explanations of street subcultures. Because on the one hand, it's a culture that has its own driving force that's kind of uh, uh, motivating people. It takes particular directions. Uh, it shapes people's actions and so on, but at the same time it's also very much based on 
uh, economy and socio-economic marginalization. It's this attempt to uh, find another space to get uh, some kind of uh, respect and, and dignity for a group of very marginalized people. After this book, the, the framework has been expanded. Uh, we have written about the street field. Capital is always situated in a particular field. So if you talk about capital, it's always related to a field. And that's uh, pretty hard when it comes to a concept such as street capital, because it's not a particular institution and it's not a, uh, a particular place. Street is like a metaphor for crime and a particular kind of crime, not any kind of crime too, but still we try to describe the street field that uh, uh, is somehow similar in very different countries and very different contexts. Uh, Jonathan Egen has uh, uh, continued and worked on street social capital to show how in the same way as networking and so on is important for cultural capital, who knows who, uh, street social capital is important for people on the street. And uh, Jennifer Fleetwood has uh, taken it even further and tried to combine it with uh, more uh, constructivist uh, perspectives. And she describes narrative habitus as this kind of uh, things you need to uh, say and the way you need to talk and so on on the street. And together we also describe the narrative repertoire of the street field in a quite recent paper. Which is diff it's a difficult exercise because it tries to combine some theoretical perspectives that are not necessarily uh, in, in line. Uh, narrative criminology, which, which is my other main interest, uh, which basically says that stories are really important. The stories people tell uh, defines uh, what they do and uh, influences them and are important. People act on good stories. And the Bourdieu's framework, which somehow downplays uh, the role of language, saying that the most important things are the doxa, things that are never said. Yeah, and uh, last week I was in Copenhagen and there was a new uh, PhD uh, that I was, I was on the committee of, Hakan Kalkan, who's been doing a nine-year fieldwork with uh, immigrant gangs uh, in Copenhagen and written a 1,000-page <laughs> PhD. So I think the, the tradition continues and becomes more, more and more extreme. But it's, very, it's a very good one. Yeah, I wish it was written in English so that you could read it. But hopefully there will come some maybe smaller text from it too. <laughs> okay, so this uh, framework of uh, Bourdieu's in criminology was the background for this recent work that I did with John, uh, Jonathan Egan, where we tried to understand this process where former gangsters, gangsters or people committed to some kind of street culture become jihadists. So we thought, okay, maybe we can use this concept or this framework to try to understand this apparent paradox where people move from very different uh, uh, scenes. But before 
Coming to this, let's see, uh, take a short look at how Islam used to be perceived in street culture. I did the fieldwork in 2005-2006 when we wrote this book with ethnic minority drug dealers in Oslo. And many of these had uh, Muslim backgrounds. The young men were not very religious, but they did not eat pork. They had some broad references to Islam now and then. Uh, but still, it was not very important for them. So, uh, ten years ago, religious commitment was a clear sign of decreasing criminal activity. Islam was their main reason for wanting to get out of street dealing crime and to settle down. Religion was not an integrated part of street culture. Rather, uh, religion kept youths out of crime and made street criminals want to break with their lifestyle, settle down and get a family and get a wife. And this can be illustrated by this quote from one of uh, my main participants, uh, Mua, who says, You got this sense of anxiety, it never leaves you. Usually, I just think about all the stuff I've done that I have to pay for one day, either in this life or the next. I'm going to be judged on it, my sins, I mean, he says. And uh, in a similar study from Frankfurt, uh, Another fantastic uh, street uh, uh, ethnography, I think. Five years of, uh, of fieldwork with uh, Turkish uh, drug dealers. It has not received much uh, attention yet, but I think it's, it, it definitely should. But the point here is that uh, uh, she was also studying this uh, group of dealers with Muslim backgrounds and she said that they didn't want to sell uh, to women, they preferred selling cannabis to selling harder uh, drugs because they were Muslims, that was the explanation or the uh, justification or whatever it was. Uh, and also that they treated money uh, from drug business as haram paras, as impure. Uh, and they argued that it could not be used on family durable, durable goods or saved uh, for the future. So we had this kind of discussion how uh, yeah, how much is this really the influence of Islam and how much is this just the case that no drug dealer ever took to uh, spend money on their uh, mother or uh, durable goods or save them for the future. So maybe it's just an excuse for a very established, a new excuse for a very established uh, practice. But the main impression, anyway, from both studies was a clear distinction between street culture and Islam. Islam. It was something different. Uh, there was no other way out than getting straight, no martyrdom that cleaned old sins, or no religious groups to join where they could get credit for the street skills. They knew they had to make a clear break with criminal lifestyle to be considered real Muslims. She had uh, her fieldwork at the same time as, uh, as me, like 10 years 12 years ago. Now this has changed. Violent jihadists now openly recruit people from street culture and play on street culture symbols to attract new members. And uh, maybe this can be understood better by using both use uh, concepts. So, only very briefly, this guy you probably know, uh, Jihadi John, was small for his age and bullied. Uh, he had a long career of drug taking before. Uh, going to Syria, street crime and rap music. He viewed himself as part of a faith persecuted and he was first drawn towards street culture and then drawn towards violent uh, jihadism. 
in this kind of an alternative search for respect uh, provided by street capital. Another guy, uh, very often guys, uh, is the Norwegian gang criminal Arpan Bhatti. This is before and after picture. He was part of founding uh, first one of like the big, uh, most uh, well-known and feared uh, gang criminals uh, in Oslo, and then uh, later part of founding an extremist jihadist organization in Norway. And uh, he was particularly good at recruiting new people, uh, and somehow uh, be became the leader or one of the most important guys in that organization. So, but they transformed street capital into a resource in networks supportive of violent jihadism. He was a tough guy, badass in the first place, and this was appreciated in jihadist circles. People knew about his violent potential, and his street capital made people respect him. This also made him attractive for the jihadists, because uh, he had the kind of the skills and the habitus that they needed. Uh, in their efforts for uh, or attempts to fight uh, a holy war. And while this was possible a couple of years ago, I think 15 years ago, it would have been unthinkable to have a former well-known gang criminal without changing lifestyle that much, becoming the main face of a religious uh, organization or group. So, uh, those definitely something going on at that point at that point in time another guy big a was a gang leader and the point here is not these particular people i mean there are just uh, examples of a more general trend that also happens to people that are less well known uh, in the public gang leader in copenhagen involved in drug dealing and trafficking he traveled to syria to fight with the rebels to make up for his wrongs he really wanted to change uh, his lifestyle, uh, I think. He tried. Uh, and, but the jihadists fighting there sent him back. They didn't want him. Uh, and they rather wanted him to collect money in the Copenhagen underworld. So he transformed his street capital into funding for jihadist groups instead. And rumor says that he collected money from drug dealers uh, to get uh, to fund these jihadist groups. People that owed him money, uh, he approached them, told them to pay back, and he sent the money to Syria instead. Now he's marginalized in the Copenhagen underworld after having gotten some severe beatings by rival gangs. So he somehow seems to be stuck in crime, although he at some point tried to change. So street capital... Uh, can explain both attraction to street culture, I think, and to jihadism. There are some important similarities here. Uh, street capital and uh, the jihadi subculture, the jihadi cool, as uh, it's sometimes uh, sagemen, for example, describe it as the jihadi cool, is based on marginalization. And it's all sorts of marginalizations, social, economic, symbolic... Uh, and what's important is that it is perceived marginalization. It's the feeling of being an outsider. A lot of people are, if you look at uh, numbers or object, objective uh, 
characteristics. A lot of people are marginalized in many different ways, but what's particular for this group of people is that they kind of feel they feel it and uh, they interpret it as uh, oppression from mainstream society or parts of mainstream society. So uh, it's also this kind of opposition going against society, protesting against the marginalization that they have uh, experienced, somehow getting back at the society that they feel uh, oppressed them. Another similarity is this attraction to alternative styles. Uh, and this is a picture of another uh, guy who went to Syria who kind of tried all these different styles, one after the other, before he ended up in, in jihadism. And now uh, it seems that the jihadi symbolics and uh, semiotics and, uh, and all of that is, has become another possible choice on the subcultural uh, the list of subcultures anyone any youth can actually uh, relate to and there are ways of relating I mean you can become all engaged and uh, and travel to Syria and so on but you can also just play with it uh, and we see that a lot for example uh, young people putting up small provocative things on their page, Facebook page just to see what happens like some kind of uh, sharing a video from ISIS or showing the flag or something like that. Maybe they don't need, mean that much uh, they don't put that much meaning into it but it's just some kind of trying to play with some very provocative uh, signs and, and symbols. And maybe it's actually the most potent uh, oppositional symbol uh, right now. Jihadism. Uh, and finally, the attraction to violence, excitement, protest, masculinity uh, is also the same in uh, street culture and uh, jihadism. And uh, this uh, guy to the left here is another uh, foreign fighter who first was doing boxing and then MMA and always had this thing about fighting and violence and uh, in the end it, uh, he went to Syria to fight. Probably partly driven by religious reasons, partly driven by social consciousness, political worries, but also uh, I think very clearly uh, motivated by his kind of uh, attraction towards violence and fighting and, and so on. So street capital is uh, embodied, it's this habitus that's difficult to change. Uh, and uh, many new jihadis continue their street lifestyle after joining jihadist groups. Maybe they don't want to change, maybe they can't manage to change. Uh, and one example here from uh, another picture is uh, Samilu Khan was posing in this uh, gangster st style way from, from uh, Syria. And usually in pictures of uh, foreign fighters or terrorists, jihadi terrorists, they are very serious when they pose with the weapons. It's either like this or on the back or in their hand. It kind of shows this, this is a serious cause. Uh, we're not playing here. This is, we have a violent potential. You should fear us, but this is serious and we are... 
But this kind of uh, style of posing with weapons is very common in, in American gangs, for example. So this is just a clear copying of practices from American street gangs. It's kind of a way of posing. So they bring on their practices, uh, and it's hard to change because this is what they are used to, so they can't just change overnight, even if they want to. And this can also be seen in uh, uh, the way many return to regular crime after having been jihadist for a while. So it's not like uh, they are involved in regular crime and then become jihadist and they turn to some other uh, kind of crime, but it's more like they become jihadist and then sometimes they go back to regular crime and they become jihadist again. It's, it's much more mixed, uh, these practices. So it's really difficult to turn away from these street practices when becoming engaged in extreme groups. And habitus is, is a nice way, I think, to conceptualize this uh, lack of change or a cultural continuity that uh, creates the new hybrid culture. So if we go to the literature, what can uh, religious extremists offer criminals? They can offer them exciting experiences of group unity, love, power, violence, and adventure, Cotillian Hayward says. They can offer them uh, adrenaline, strong identity, and a sense of rebellion and being anti-establishment. Uh, they can also be this pride of being the worst of the worst. Uh, being what Jack Katz describes as the badass. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, the jihadist or ISIS symbols are probably the most potent uh, symbols of evil uh, right now. So if you wanna, if you're attracted to being the most evil person in the world, uh, this is the kind of culture you would probably seek out. At the same time, we have to remember that it's also offers this redemption from past sins, as Olivier Roy Manchester. It gives people a religious purpose in life. And maybe if you have had a criminal lifestyle for a while, uh, and you've done a lot of wrong, and maybe you feel bad about it, you want to change like dramatically. You want to do something very grandiose to change, to show the world that you've changed. So that can also be part of the picture. And finally, it's an opportunity to reinvest street capital. Uh, and in jihadi organizations, street criminals don't have to start from scratch if they want to become a jihadist. So uh, they can reinvest their accumulated street capital in a more moral endeavor. And in this way, their street habitus becomes a resource and not a problem. So for these people who have been socialized into uh, street culture for years and street uh, environments, if they want to change and go somewhere else, if they want to go to mainstream society, their habitus, their uh, knowledge, their way of talking, everything is against them. And it would be really hard to get any kind of position if they want to change lifestyle. But 
And, and 10, 15 years ago, that was the only option, I see. But now there is this other options where you can kind of uh, go to an extreme uh, religious movement and hang on to your street habits, hang on to your competences and get, be acknowledged for it. And go from having high status in, in one system to having high status uh, in another. So in that sense, and that's the practical rationality that the Bodhya describes. It's not like they put up an equation and makes a decision to go, but it's just this kind of, it explains some of the draw of these movements, that they don't have to give up uh, all their competences uh, and capital and, uh, and knowledge when, when moving. There's some kind of cultural homology from the one culture to the other that's... Uh, uh, probably appreciate it and it makes the move easier easier but uh, limitations or whatever we call it numbers are uncertain uh, so when I say that this has become more important it's uh, we don't really know that for sure because we didn't count them in the 60s and 70s so it's not like anyone had numbers of people being convicted of crime prior to political or religious uh, radicalizations from the 60s and 70s uh, and also now it's a little bit difficult to how you measure it, what kind of crimes and, and so on so uh, numbers are not certain but most people uh, most researchers in this field still agree that there seems to be a tendency in, in that direction and also whether it's 30%, 60% or 80% or whatever, it's an interesting phenomenon for that group of people uh, that it uh, matters for or relates to. So I think even if it's, even if it's just one-fourth of, uh, of uh, new jihadists, it's important to try to see what happens with this group. <coughs> It's also not a new phenomenon. There's always been criminals engaged in terrorist organizations uh, and similar types of people have been drawn towards these groups. We've seen this in FARC, in the IRA, and so on. And, and finally, street criminals are not jihadi entrepreneurs, which is maybe the most important uh, criticism of this idea of crime-terror nexus. And according to Paternessa, one of the big uh, scholars in this field, marginalized street people are not the ones initiating terrorism. Rather, they are played by and manipulated by uh, what he describes as ideologists and entrepreneurs. So, in that sense, they are not the most important actors when explaining or trying to prevent terrorism. He shows how he has plotted the, all the terrorist attacks uh, in Europe from the 90s, jihadi terrorist attacks in, uh, in Europe from the 70s and until now. Not only the attacks, but also the uh, plots that were discovered by the police. And he argues that it all comes down to this network in London and Paris with maybe around 100, 150 hardcore jihadists. And their ideology uh, is really important, uh, of course. Still, I would say that uh, if it's the misfits, as he describes them, he, he describes all the different roles in a, in a jihadi terrorist network. If it is the misfits that actually commit 
the terrorist attacks, I would still argue that they are a pretty important part of it. And also if they explain the, the rise in uh, recruitment, if they are the new recruits. It can be that uh, these basic networks are kind of explaining the, the way this is systematic and going on over time and so on, but uh, if the new thing is uh, the rise of street criminals coming in, we should try to understand uh, it better. So, the street jihadi nexus has some kind of interest. Uh, the last decade has seen a rise in jihadi violence in the West. Most of it is perpetrated by young Muslim men from the West, and they have often developed their violent skills in Western street culture and prisons. So, in short, drug users, petty and more hardcore criminals have become the main recruitment base for jihadi groups. And this makes it crucial to understand uh, how jihadi groups and jihadi rhetoric are dealt with and perceived in these environments. So this is the starting point from uh, when... Uh, you don't have that much, you've got ten more minutes. Ten more minutes, okay. You should have never told me to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big mistake. <laughs> uh, I'll go fast. Uh, the new field work. Same scene, so the idea, okay, if this is where people recruit, uh, we know a lot about jihadists, but we don't know much about these scenes where they recruit and how ordinary street criminals relate to uh, jihadists. So, uh, in a new project, Sebastian Tutanj uh, went back to the scene where I did my uh, research 10 years ago, and we wanted to see how street culture had changed the last 10 years. So... The first striking observation was that uh, religion had become much more important. Uh, everything else was the same. They dealt uh, drugs in the same way, they were fighting in the same way, they were saying the same kind of things. They even had the same like popular cultural references. But, and this violent street culture was still dominant. But religions became, uh, had become much more important. They were constantly discussing uh, religions while, uh, religion while dealing drugs and describing each other in religious terms. So, uh, with the background uh, of knowing that this is where they recruited, we wondered how the Muslim street criminals view violent jihadists. And given what I've talked about so far, uh, the expectation was that they had some kind of fascination for the violent spectacles, that they had some kind of recognition of the opposition, or maybe not that they really identified with it 100%, but they had some kind of, uh, some kind of fascination for it. But what we found was a very strong and clear resistance, uh, which can be seen in this quote, which uh, it's written in big letters because he's kind of shouting it to Sebastian. Uh, he approached the drug dealer explaining uh, the research project and the response was very emotional. He re refers to that guy with a bomb. Uh, there was a guy who had made a bomb uh, uh, just a couple of hundred meters away. Uh, and he says he wants to kill them. Uh, and he points to them. This is, uh, those are the people recruiting and so on. If I was allowed, punches in the air uh, and so on. So... The first uh, answer to the research question, how do they relate to this jihadi group, is that they uh, st are strongly opposed to it. Uh, 
And it's not an abstract problem for these young men in these environments. They know people who have traveled, they know recruiters who have approached them, uh, and so on. And because they are so close to the problem, we think that there is really effective de-radicalization work going on at these scenes. And it's important to study and work with people from street culture and work within the street cultural logic to understand it, to constrain extremism and the problem of jihadists targeting these people. So there are, of course, differences as well between street culture and jihadic cultures. It's a pietist culture against a very hedonistic one, one who uses a lot of drugs, another one who says you shouldn't use drugs, sexual excess versus sexual uh, limitations. Uh, but there are also uh, reasons to resist jihadism in, uh, uh, that's embedded in, in the street cultural logic. So, uh, one thing you could say is that extremists does not have street capital. That was one of the reasons they gave for being opposed to it. Uh, the jihadists uh, are not following the code of the street. So, if we start from the assumption that everybody has some kind of morality, even criminals, uh, street drug dealers, the w first statement there is that uh, why should they kill innocents? So it is kind of very mainstream idea that killing innocent people is not, uh, it's not allowed or more, morally defensible. But the other uh, citation so shows some more uh, cultural logic embedded in, in the street, street culture. Don't use a knife if you're going to fight unless the other one has one. Uh, it doesn't give any cred to attack innocent people. It doesn't give any cred to, uh, to attack uh, uh, old ladies. You should try to find someone your own size, or preferably even bigger, and then if you fight them, you get more street cap capital. You can even be beaten them up and get street capital if you just show that you're not a coward running away and, and so on. So, the... Ter idea, terrorism or blowing up a bomb, killing innocent people, uh, doesn't really uh, resonate with street uh, culture. Doesn't resonate with uh, ideas of masculinity in street culture. So that's one reason why they uh, reject it. Also, the resistance is highly emotional. Uh, they are psychopathic, not normal humans, he says. They get got red eyes when they speak. That shows that they have drunk lots uh, of blood. Uh, so, uh, somehow the most emotional responses we got were from uh, street drug dealers. They were much more emotional about it than regular Muslims. And that probably uh, reflects that they feel more, they feel the stigma more. Uh, it's kind of, uh, they've always been stigmatized for being drug dealers, being ethnic minorities and so on, but now they're also possibly uh, terrorists. So it becomes really important to draw the boundary, to say to everyone that, oh, well, I'm not one of them. And we know that well from the symbolic boundary literature, that the strongest boundaries are always drawn against the ones that are the closest to you. It's, it's the one you need to... Uh, we see that in academia too. <laughs> it's, the one you, it's the one you need to show that you're not. Yeah. 
But the emotional responses has got two sides to it. A negative one, of course, it can justify beating them up, can be used as a justification for grave or violence, if you accuse them of being supportive of ISIS and so on. We have seen that in, in uh, gang fights in, uh, in Norway, where uh, the one group accused the other one of being like sympathizing with ISIS, and that probably explains why the violence got even graver than it would have been otherwise. And this kind of dehumanization is always dangerous. It's easier to kill people or to harm people that becomes representatives of evil and who are not considered to be human. But it has also got a positive side to it, the emotional resistance. And that is that it can justify snitching and violence. It can make participants in street culture break with the most important rule, you shall not snitch. And during my previous ethnographic fieldwork and many years of interviewing all kinds of drug dealers, I can hardly remember anyone admitting to snitching. They could admit to, to selling drugs, of course, uh, show me the routes where they have smuggled, and, and violence, beating up people, getting beaten, but uh, never snitching. But still, in this new data, we have examples of people saying that they will snitch. This guy here. So, since many extremists now come from these environments, a good relationship to them is, of course, uh, beneficial when it comes to getting information about potential radicalized individuals. So, other reasons for uh, not uh, being attracted to uh, jihadist organizations are more mainstream ones. Extremists misinterpret Islam, Extremists bring disrepute to Islam and Muslims. They inflict suffering. They are mad, sad and bad. This is very much the same as the reasons we found among uh, ordinary Muslims. So this can be some kind of reminder that these differences are not always important. And that even highly violent subcultures share many of the same values as more mainstream society. So this is where I wanted to squeeze in uh, the last study, but I won't. Uh, but we did this uh, interviews and we had a media campaign. If some of you want to see them, it's under the Muslim Voices without uh, speaking the words and uh, so on. So I just wanted to I just skip that. But what's important for street culture uh, and the argument in this talk is that the main perceptions of jihadists among ordinary Muslims is that they are criminals, they are drug users, they are uneducated, and they have psychological problems. Uh, brainwashed, uh, one said. Uh, he's a psychopath, uh, one young Muslim said about uh, a former friend who went to Syria. They're crazy. Many of their travels are criminals. They've only been Muslim for two, three months. I think they are analphabets, they don't know much about their parents, maybe lost their parents, never been to school. So, when ISIS got too closely connected to or associated with a violent western subculture, it limited mainstream Muslim support. They got associated to this because the large number of former criminals and drug users that traveled to Syria, they also actively tried to appeal to this group uh, by playing on street cultural uh, symbolics. <coughs> but in terms of recruitment, the symbolic association to the street is, is, is an ambiguous resource. 
It attracts some, but repels more. Few want to be associated with the likes of Jihadi John and other notorious criminals. And more generally, uh, although there is some fascination in popular culture, this is a highly marginalized and stigmatized subculture. So, to conclude, uh, the street jihadi culture uh, changes Western street culture. It makes Islam uh, something dangerous and cool. It attracts new recruits to jihadism. These are young excitement seekers concerned with style and searching for action. And they often have a long career in regular crime. And uh, the new street jihadi culture offers a moral way out for hardened criminals. It's a space where they can get status for their criminal backgrounds as opposed to almost anywhere else in society. And finally, it shapes and transforms the way jihadi group works. For example, ISIS, uh, many provocations, extreme videos and style that must be understood within this subculture universe. Still, uh, while all of this is true, it's important to remember that there is, it's a long way from street culture to violent jihadism. And the overwhelming majority are not drawn towards it. Yeah, at least that's what our data indicates. And this, maybe more importantly, this uh, resistance that emerges from the street is probably more important than the kind of counter-radicalization efforts done by the government or the municipalities or the police or all of these other agents that are trying to fight the, uh, extremism. Because people will listen more to their friends, listen more to the cultural codes in the environment they are in, uh, and so on. And it's also a very practical thing where you can play on this resistance to get uh, information, uh, and so on. So, jihadi groups... Uh, Association to street culture finally make mainstream mobilization more difficult. It, it kind of limits it. While it's a way to get new members, it's also a very effective way to stop more broad and mainstream mobilization. Very few uh, Salafi or conservative or highly religious people will want to be associated with a group of former drug users and, and street criminals. So when that becomes the face of the movement, it's a way of getting very uh, highly potentially violent people that can fight and all of that, but also a way to, to uh, make it stay within that group. So what now? My last slide. Uh, the same, uh, there's been a downfall of ISIS and somehow jihadism seems, seems to be a little bit out of fashion and it's not that uh, important anymore. It's lost some kind of momentum with the downfall of ISIS. But I think the mechanisms described are very similar to other kinds of political and religious uh, movements or radical movements. Uh, Right-wing extremism, for example, we know, uh, have always attracted uh, criminals for uh, exactly the same uh, reasons, uh, and also maybe left-wing uh, extremism. extremism has done uh, the same. And someone told me now that left-wing extremism is the most violent in 
in northern Europe uh, because they attack uh, right-wing extremists. Uh, but the right-wing extremists won't tell the police or anyone else because it ruins their self-image and they don't want to be portrayed as, as victims. So I hope that the ideas, the concepts, the processes described is not about uh, jihadism or Islam and street culture, but it's more generally about the movement from regular street crime and street culture to religious and political uh, movements. Thanks. Thank you.